this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Hi, and welcome to Real Good Stuff. I'm Scott Clapson. We are here today for a very special episode called Radical Hospitality with Carrie Morrison. How are you, Carrie? I am fantastic. Thanks, Scott. It's so wonderful to have you. We're recording in Pan Pacific Park. So, uh, and we are being very purposeful. I was telling Carrie before the podcast, we're recording in the age of COVID. COVID-19. We're six feet apart. We're six feet apart. We're talking about community-based mental health transformation, right? And that's very appropriate, right? As we're talking about police brutality and police brutality often happens to people who are struggling with mental wellness, mm-hmm. right? I'm, it's a new thing I'm coming up with. With I just keep keep, keep, keep hearing people say mental wellness instead of just mental health mm-hmm. and kind of reframing it as a, it's not always a struggle, right? As especially we find people support. So welcome to Real Good Stuff, Carrie. Thank you. Thank you. So glad to be here. So you were the founder and director of Heart Forward LA? Yes. Yeah? Yeah. Do you want to tell us what Heart Forward is? So Heart Forward, you know, um, I created this small nonprofit. It's very, it's very humble. It, it, it actually is is a part of Community Partners, which okay. is a fiscal sponsor for a lot of. It's Community Partners is like an incubator for nonprofits. Oh, cool. Okay. So if you're small and you wanted you you don't want to have to deal with all the issues related to yeah. your tax return and 501c3 status, etc. Uh, they they took me on as a project. So Hard Forward is intended to be. I like to say holding the DNA of what we've learned about the the Italian mental health model in Trieste, Italy, that we have been so inspired by what they do there that Heart Forward is kind of the the holder of that DNA. I want to tell that story as widely as possible, that there's, it's a really hopeful story. And so that ends up kind of supporting my activities in that space. That okay. little nonprofit. That's so amazing. I love the way that you say it. Because, uh, yeah, fiscal sponsorship for folks that don't know if you're interested in starting a nonprofit, that's a way that a lot of really successful nonprofits get their start, right? Is they find Urban Voices Project is a got com- their start community. that way. Yes. They started with a community partner and then kind of became their own. Um, really interesting. So that's really cool. But also, like what you said about the DNA, right? And the storytelling part of. Well, obviously, you get it. You're a community organizer. So um, Heart Forward LA is very innovative. And what's happening in Italy is very innovative. And why is it innovative, what they're doing there? So I I had the super privilege to travel to Trieste, Italy in the summer of 2017. I was a Stanton fellow. I had a two-year fellowship to uh, my exploration. My fellowship was predicated upon, is there a better way to help people with severe mental illness. Because I, uh, running the Business Improvement District in Hollywood, I was really troubled by how difficult it was to help people with severe mental illness. Mm -hmm. They were really left in our American system to languish or die on the streets. And so my journey, the first year of my fellowship, I studied places in in the United States, like who's doing it better in the US? And I couldn't really find anything. Really? Few people said you really should go see 
the city in Italy that the World Health Organization has designated as the global best practice for how a community-based mental health system should be created. And they'd been doing it for 40 years. And it is kind of like a pilgrimage um, opportunity for people who, who want to see it in action. So I went, um, you know, thanks to this fellowship I was awarded, and I was blown away by what I saw. And, you know, like, just in a nutshell, the, the way I described that first visit, um, it's a city of, like, 230,000 people, which mm-hmm. is, you know, pretty large. Yeah. And um, in that city, they have six psychiatric beds for the whole city in an unlocked ward. So let's just start with that. And it's unlocked. It's unlocked. Yeah, you so if you, if you, as a listener, you don't know, you've never... I will raise my hand. I've had the privilege of being in a facility like that. And they're usually locked and you usually can't go anywhere and you don't have your own clothes. You don't have anything of your own. Um, that's amazing. You it's can have unlocked. your cell phone. You can wear your really? clothes. When you walk into their, um, their psych ward, I guess you would call it that, uh, you can't tell who's actually a patient there and who is the doctor because everybody's wearing their own clothing. There's no lanyards. Yeah. There's no name wow. tags. It's it it's just it, it just start with that, okay? There's no homeless people wandering the streets. They have like three people in their city jail. And so the the mothership of the of the Italian system is their community mental health center. And they created those when they closed their asylum, finally closed their asylum in 1980. They divided their city into four quadrants. And they 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 get this. This this will also make you fall off the bleacher here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the the staff who work in each of these four community mental health centers feel a hundred percent accountable for every person living with a mental illness in their catchment area. So they know where they are. They know if they're struggling. If they get this, if they end up in that hospital where the six beds are, the psychiatrist from the community mental health center that that person is assigned to goes to the hospital to find out what happened and figures out a plan to get that person out of the hospital as quickly as possible. So it, it, it's just beyond remarkable. And I, the, the day that I was there, I spent a whole day with this wonderful young psychiatrist, Dr. Tommaso Bonavigo. He's like in his mid-30s, spoke English, so he was assigned to take me everywhere that day. And at the end of the day, I just kind of started crying. And he looked at me, he was so confused, like, what are you doing? And I said, I almost wish I hadn't seen this because I don't know what to do with this information I'm going to go back to the United States and I manage a business improvement district. Like, why would anybody listen to me? What we have done in the American system is we have fallen so far into the abyss. I don't even see how we could even come close to emulating this. Well, they didn't start there, right? No. <laughs> and I never put the microphone down. I know. I, said, are you, are you? <laughs> I don't ever put the microphone down. If you've ever recorded with me or been in the space where I've recorded, I don't ever like. I literally like didn't. I didn't know what to say to that. Like, because one, I'm Italian, right? So like, for me, like hearing this is happening in the place where, before all of this happened, for multiple years now, I've been debating: should I go back to Italy? Should I go back to where I'm from? Like, I really want to. And then like, I found out about you, right? And I'm, 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 I'm back in LA. Full disclosure for those of you who don't know from listening to real good stuff and knowing my activism. This is why I came back. Because I was working on this stuff like 
15, 20, not in such a full way that I am now, but like, it's so important. And mm-hmm. like, whoa, I'm so stunned that like, say that again. So their mental health professionals like take what? They take what? Accountability. Accountability. You hear that? Yeah. <laughs> what Accountability. a concept. What Super a con- big concept. Yeah. Especially in the, in the culture that we're in, in the society that we're in, in the way that I see that people who are unhoused are treated, people who are without a permanent home, we're living in a quote unquote Christian nation, right? We keep getting reminded about that, but we have these people that we're just leaving out, like you said, on the street to die. So, okay, so let's go back. Cause I'm really fascinated too. Like you're working in the business improvement district, right? And you're going to Italy. And so you're in this like weird, like two, how did you manage that? So when I, when I came back from the, from the trip to Trieste, I, I was really actually pretty discouraged. Like I, I truly did not know. It's like, I've been to the promised land, but like, who's going to believe me, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so kind of interesting. I, I was, my, my fellowship was actually going to be ending in December. I, I was there in July. And about a month after I came home, there was an email that in Trieste with the World Health Organization, they were doing an international mental health conference. They do it every two years. Okay. And um, I realized I had money left in my travel budget because like, I didn't really go anywhere. Yeah. So at that time, there was a brand new head of the Department of Mental Health for LA County, Dr. Sharon. Okay. And he was hired to be a change agent by the Board of Supervisors. So I reached out to him and I reached out to Judge Bianco, who was on the mental health court. You know, So two rock stars, basically, and said, yeah. would you be interested in going back to this conference in Trieste? Like, I will underwrite your hotel rooms or just help pay expenses if, if that's an issue. And I would like to build a delegation to go back and see it yeah. because I think it's worth seeing. And uh, Dr. Sharon, I remember he said, I had always heard about that in medical school. I've been told that this would be, you know, worth seeing. I- I'm in. Count me in. Judge Bianco said, yep, I will come. And then I built out a delegation of 12 people. So the district right. attorney sent her mental health deputy. The LAPD sent the, their mental evaluation unit. Really? The sheriff sent someone from the jail and their mental evaluation unit. I had someone from LASA. I had a philanthropist. I had a, a, a social worker for a local nonprofit. Um, Look at you, yeah. anthropologist, yeah. community organizer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is why I'm such a big fan of yours. <laughs> anyway, you're amazing. So I had. To, I, I know I'm forgetting somebody, and I apologize. But I took these people back with me to the conference, and I'm like nervous. Like God, I hope they all see what I saw. And and I yeah. arranged, you know, all those tours into the hospital and into the community mental health center. And we looked at the kind of housing. And then we were in this conference with people. Here's here's the interesting thing. We were at a three-day international conference with probably, I want to say, 60 countries represented, not a single speaker from the United States. Because we don't have anything to offer in this space. There were speakers from India and Norway and the United Kingdom and the Czech Republic and Croatia, but nobody from the United States. So what does that tell you? <laughs> That's horrible. We're number one in something else besides COVID-19. Yeah. We're number one in being the worst mental wellness nation in the industrialized world. We could be that. We could. Indi- we are that. Yeah. It's so sad. It's, it's disgusting. Honestly, like it's embarrassing to me as someone who has gone through it, like obviously in a way of like community support and stuff, like mine's not a chemical imbalance. Mine's from other things, but it's like, 
really like we could be doing we could be doing it so different but why are we not like and i guess that's maybe a conversation for later in the podcast but, yeah um, that, that would wow. be did they see part two. they saw so okay. we had this very very one of the most amazing brainstorming sessions i've ever been in in my entire life happened like I don't know, three days into the conference where we ordered in a bunch of pizzas into the hotel and a couple bottles of wine and we went up into the mezzanine. And I remember Dr. Sharon said, if we were to imagine like an ecosystem, like a pilot, Mm -hmm. a protected biosphere, where we could take what we see operating here, these guiding principles in Italy and, and plant them into a pilot, what would that look like? You know, what, what would that pilot look like? And we had this like amazing given given take about like even how emergency response would look. We had right. we had cops and sheriffs in the room. Yeah. Like they don't want, this isn't what they signed up to do, yeah. you know? So we talked about how there would need to be a 24/7 non-law enforcement crisis response. Then there would have to be a safe calm place to take people that would not be the jail, not right. be the ER, you that know? That part right? That part. There'd have to be huge involvement of people with lived experience who would actually Mm -hmm. be out on those kind of like community patrols because they, they might know these individuals. Cause we, in, in Hollywood, when we imagine this could happen in Hollywood, we know these people, you know, there would have to be a, say that again. We, we what? We know these people. We know these people. Yeah, we know them. We got to stop pretending that when we walk by people who are outside, whatever their struggle is, we got to stop pretending that we don't know who they are. Right. We got to stop looking past them, whether we're a Christian or whatever our faith is. If we don't have faith, we got to stop looking past each other. We can't keep doing this. We've got to change our ways. We really have to. Exactly. Yeah. And we also imagined that the community mental health center um, would have to be a very welcoming yeah. Uh, hospitable place, so radical hospitality. Now, if you go into, for example, the Vine Street DMH clinic on Vine Street, um, it is a look. It's like a stucco building with no windows. You're immediately greeted by two armed guards and asked to open up your briefcase or backpack. And if you get past them, then you go to bulletproof glass. Okay. Not Italian, not hospitality. Super traumatic. Super traumatic just for your walking in for an appointment, much less if you're there to maybe see a psychiatrist. So we kind of imagined like what the community facility would look like and how it would be plain clothes. And if you had to have security, they would be plain clothes and not armed. We imagined that the whole person needs had to be primary. In the Italian system, it's a very horizontal system. Uh, there's no verticality. The, okay. the doctor or the clinician has no authority or no kind of authority over the, they call them users, users. They're okay. equal people. And um, they believe very much that instead of approaching this as a clinical interaction, you know, you are not your diagnosis. You are a human being with a life story and life aspirations. And so therefore, instead of like creating these massive clinical files, they try to collect the person's life story. Where are you from? Where were you born? Where's your mother? What did you do in third grade? What kind of music do you like? What's important to you? And they capture that so that they truly know the person. And then it's like, what do you want to do with your life? What are your plans? What are your aspirations? How do we help you achieve that? That is our role in the Community Mental Health Center. It's not to like, let's talk innocently, incessantly about what pill you're taking or, you know, it's, it's about your life and your future. And I know it's hard to believe that that really happens, but fast forward, I went back there 
you know, last year and I lived there for a month because I really wanted to see that. Like, mm-hmm. how do they do that? Yeah. Is this real? Like, and they do do that. So b- because that was baked into their culture from the beginning, going back to um, the visionary psychiatrist that kind of, uh, that everyone credits his vision, Dr. Franco Basaglia, that as people were leaving the asylum and moving into the community, you know, this was the ethos that kind of infused how they would do community care. Okay. It's really beautiful. And it's so easy. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's human. It's just simple. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for, um, cause it is easy, but it is human. And that's the thing that we're doing right now is we're dehumanizing folks, right? When we leave them outside and, and, um, well, I'm seeing it right now where I'm staying again, this is the second, second, interim space that I'm in where I'm seeing it like directly happen to me, happen to other people. It doesn't happen to me as much because I'm compliant Mm -hmm. and I can listen and I can follow rules. But like some people have other issues with that. Some people have issues with if you're younger than me and you're telling me what to do and you're getting bossy, I might get reactive, right? Especially if I'm not used to being inside and especially if I've lost a lot of sleep or I've got health problems, which a lot of folks do, right? That are unhoused that have you know, mental wellness issues and things like that. And the human part, the human part, like, so how, how do they get there? How do they like, like you were there for a month. So you said they do it. And it's not just a thing that they do for conferences. Right. It's right. not just a disnified mental health thing. It's actually really happening in everyday life. How do they do it? How do they do it? Yeah, it, it is, you know, it truly is cultural. So let's okay. start with that. Like I did, a, I did, a, I've done a lot of research as to why this, ethos did not work in the United States. Like, you know, I wanted to, and I'm not a psychiatrist and I don't, I don't, I don't purport to understand that world. Okay. But what I have read is that there were psychiatrists who disagreed with Dr. Franco Basaglia. They said, okay. you know, we're medical doctors and, you know, we know, and we're not going to sit down and ask someone their life story or, you know, that's kind of not what we do. We're, psychiatrist so they so it's about us it's not about the client yeah it's about my comfort not about yours mm-hmm. oh, never mind this, no not never mind it's true though right right this notion yeah. of having like this vertical relationship yeah. i'll give you an example so um they they were incredibly gracious when they um let me into their i was embedded in their system okay. I, I, they let me into every meeting even though everything was in italian so often i i didn't know exactly what was being said and afterwards i'd have to say like what just happened? Okay. <laughs> but there was one. Okay. This is what's so cool. They have these four community mental health centers. Yeah. And every single day, seven days a week, they have a daily meeting at about 1.30-ish. And everybody who's there has a, like a case conference. But the Italian ways, they don't have agendas and there's no, like, it's like, who are we going to talk about today that we all deserve to problem solve around? Okay? okay. And it's a, it's a positive thing because just like you said, there's going to be people who have a bad day or they've locked themselves in their apartment or, right. you know, they keep, you know, running away from their mother or, you know, so they will case conference like, okay, how are we going to deal with this? This particular day, um, they were talking about a man who was scheduled to come in for his monthly injection and he hadn't bathed in two months. And the people that where he was living had kind of like complained. Yeah. So it's understandable. Right. right. So they had probably a full 20 minute 
strategy discussion about how they were going to convince him to take a shower. And with, with, just with great love. I mean, the guy yeah. needs to take a shower, right? Yeah. <laughs> he really does. Yeah. And so the, the head psychiatrist there, Dr. Matteo Impagnatiello, I just very good, very yeah, good. Yeah. I learned that the G in the end is I'm in Pagnatiello. Italian's not an easy language it's not like people easy. think. No, no, no. Um, I remember they decided, and he went. He was 100 percent for this. That because Matteo had been around for so many years, he was probably in his 60s, and this guy knew him and, and trusted him and yeah. respected him. That it was going to be Matteo's job to sit down with him and convince him to take a shower. And Matteo was going to like have one of the other folks with him. But Matteo was like, I'm all, I'm, I'm in hundred percent. Like yeah. if y'all think that I'm the one that's going to be able to help him make that step, I'm in. Yeah. And, and like, this is the head psychiatrist, right? That's really cool. And what was also cool about this, about this meeting is that the receptionist, the person who answers the phone was included in the meeting. She was still answering phone calls during the meeting. Okay. But of course she should be included. She's part of the human connection. Right. She's the first person you might call. So if she has an opinion, it's worth hearing. So I Absolutely. Mean, there are multiple examples like that. Never would a psychiatrist, I'm sorry, here, would never spend 20 minutes talking about this and then agree to be part of the solution. Yeah. It's amazing how privilege can get in our way. Right. Whether it's mental health privilege or positional white privilege. privilege, positional privilege, so many things. And just people kind of thinking that somehow I'm not a human because of whatever my circumstances and they're somehow better than me. and can treat me in such a way or can, as has happened to many of my friends here in L.A., drug them up so bad they can't even function. And I have to question that sometimes like. Again, who are we serving at that point? We're then having someone that's just staying in an institution and just living there, not functional because they're so hopped up on everything because nobody knows what to do with them rather than talking with them right. and treating them like a human being. And like you said, like human beings need baths. And when they're not functional because they're so medicated when they don't even need to be medicated like that, because some of my friends didn't, they didn't, but it was law enforcement gotten, law enforcement got involved and then they became agitated and then all of a sudden they have to be restrained. Well, I think anybody would need to be restrained if they were being agitated and treated the way that we treat people in our culture. We treat people in our culture right now and they'll tell you, this is for your own safety. Mm -hmm. This is for your own, but you're arresting me and treating me like a, you're putting me in handcuffs and you're taking me to the jail. Everything you're doing is telling me you're criminalizing me in our culture. Yeah. And then we do this over and over and over and over and over and over again. And then we expect that, that these people are going to be able to function. I'm just learning how to function again after going through it, right? Yeah. And I've the, got a college education. The whole thing is to try to avoid trauma to yeah. the greatest extent possible. Because trauma is just going to set you backwards. Yeah. You know, two steps forward, eight steps back or whatever. And so to the, you know, to the point of that great brainstorming session, and thanks to Dr. Sharon for you know, stimulating our discussion, we kind of came back in 2018 and designed what we thought a pilot would look like if, if we, gosh, if we could do a pilot in an American context. Like some people will say like, well, why'd you have to go all the way to Italy to find a better way to do yeah. things? I'm like, well, do you have a suggestion here? Okay, and, that, and then why is it that you think we couldn't learn something from yeah. another country? Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. are not 
we don't have like you know the corner on on you know all things human connected yeah but we we came back and we we designed a a, a, a way to do it and dr sharon hired a consultant to um those kids going by dr sharon hired a consultant to kind of you know package it into an american context what would it look like if we could do a yeah. pilot in hollywood and that he, he hired uh, dr dave Pallon, who who was in charge of um, the village in long beach was which was a, also a pretty radically um aligned kind of connect, uh, social uh, experiment that they did in the 90s in this in this respect and, and what was that one called again? The Village the at Mental village? Health okay. Services. They had a three-year contract to do whole person, truly whole person care okay. um, uh, for clients in their catchment area. So in May of 2019, um, a proposal was presented to the state's um, Oversight and Accountability Committee for the Mental Health Services Act, proposing a five-year pilot in Hollywood uh, of a service delivery model and a community engagement model that was guided by these Italian principles, and the state agreed to fund it. Here? Yes. Now, the problem was, like I don't know. <laughs> there's this thing called the pandemic. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. So this was recent that this... That May this 2019, the state oversight committee agreed to fund the pilot, and then the, the county's next step was to then prepare the framework to accept that state money and to begin a robust planning process to, to start the pilot. And those things were in the works and then the pandemic came. So it's kind of like so, a monkey wrench. But it's kind of like this wonderful like moment of... Because didn't you say it at the beginning of the podcast? What is Heart Forward about? It's about telling the story right? Mm -hmm. And this gives you more time to tell the story, right? It's, it's why I'm having you as a guest, right? Mm -hmm. Our first repeat title of an episode, Radical Hospitality. And, oh, well, and it wasn't real good stuff. It was back with KCAW with an interfaith forum, ironically. Mm -hmm. But that's part of this work, right? It's like, there's so many people involved, right? But like we talked about, like, we know these people. And it's like, how many of us come into contact with these folks throughout the day? And how many of us could be a better support to the people that we know so people aren't falling through the cracks, right? Exactly. I mean, like another example of the Italian system is that they do involve families and friends, like right off the bat. Whereas in the American system, we, you know, we marginalize families yeah. right off the bat. And um, I remember asking, you know, we asked like, well, why do you include the family? And then they would look at us like, well, why, why wouldn't we include yeah. the family? And they kept asking questions from their context, and then we realized, oh, we're, we're stuck in this American HIPAA yeah. box. You have to find the family. You, you have to at least, it's part of capturing the person's life story. Yeah. What is their family background? In Hollywood, you know, we, we uh, as a little coalition, work to try to help people with severe mental illness. So we called this group, the Hollywood top 14. These were 14 people that were extremely vulnerable. Okay. And in every instance, and the, we were mostly lay people just trying to see what we could do to help folks. We would try to track down the person's family Yeah. and then call them up. Right. Like when was the last time you saw Bob? Oh, yeah. I haven't seen Bob in 15 years. <laughs> is he there? How is he? Right. I don't know. Do you, sorry. <laughs> yes. Do you care? 
you know, I mean, yeah, we got to start taking responsibility for the people anyway. Some mm. care and some don't, but even if some don't, I have found that they will stay in contact. Yeah. Yeah, they will. Well, because I think also more often than not, most of the folks that I know that do this work around home, a lot of them have family members mm-hmm. that have gone through this, that have passed or are still alive that... They have a difficulty. You know, I even know comedians that are doing like things on Instagram live and they're coming out and they're talking about mental illness in their family or their own like mental health struggles. And it's like, we're really a part of this movement where we're like, we're, we're undoing this all together. Right. And you're a big part of it. And it's so, it's so innovative that like you came through a business improvement district, right. That was innovative at its time when business improvement, right. I listened to a previous podcast where you talked about that and how this was a new thing when you first got involved. Right. And it was like the mid nineties, right? Right. No, it was, um, 96 when I was hired by the Hollywood entertainment district, it was the, the state had only just passed a law allowing for the creation of business improvement districts, which is essentially a tool whereby property owners agree to uh, assess themselves extra money, largely to, to help make a community clean and safe. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. And Hollywood wasn't very, mm. like... Hollywood was in, was in dire straits in, in 96 when I interviewed because... They they had experienced, first of all, there was a recession in the 90s, mm-hmm. the 92 civil unrest, the 94 Northridge earthquake, which significantly impacted Hollywood, including many buildings that fell yeah. down. And then they were tunneling a subway yeah. under Hollywood Boulevard. It was like a triple, <laughs> you know, whammy. And hardly anything was still breathing, like the Roosevelt Hotel and, you know... The Chinese theater, sort of, it, it, but it was, it was pretty well, desolate. And HIV was still like, especially at that early part of the '90s, was still really like it wasn't until the mid '90s where it really like, sort of like curbed the death rate and things mm-hmm. in the LGBTQ community, mm-hmm. and that's very much right. That was a very big part of, you know, Hollywood at that time, exactly pre 1990s. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow, I didn't really think about that because I didn't come here till 96. So I came right about the time, and that, I was living out in the San Gabriel Valley to start. So, yeah. So wow. So what got you? Like I heard the story. You answered an ad, and and I'm just really fascinated though because now you're at the cutting edge of this other innovation, right? I mean, look what's happened in Hollywood in the last however many. I mean, it's a tourist destination again. When I was a kid. People said, you don't go to Hollywood when you go to L.A. You don't need to go see it. It's not worth it anymore. Um, it's worth it now to a lot of people. It's really like a, an attraction for people to come to again. How does it feel to be on the innovative kind of cutting edge of another thing and another field that's kind of was kind of connected and intersectional? But you're obviously an innovator. And how does that feel to you to be an innovator? Does that like ever freak you out? or? It's... Um- <laughs> It's kind of exciting and um, scary all at the same time, especially now with you know the pandemic and the, the pilot being put on hold. I've had to kind of be thoughtful and discerning, like what do I do with this message and what do I do with what seems to be a really impossible undertaking? Yeah. I mean, I'm a person of faith and it's like, I know God wants better for these people. I know that, I know his heart and um, so I'm just trusting that he's got a plan and maybe it's going to play itself out in a different way. Yeah. But every day I just keep pressing on. Like yeah. even meeting you, I think, was a divine appointment because I know we got some plans on things we're going to do together. And so 
I'm kind of like always exciting. It's exciting anticipation on what each day is going to bring. Yeah, absolutely. As that Holy Spirit wind kicks up right there, <laughs> that's not lost on me, Carrie Morrison. I know all about it. Um, yeah, it's it's so interesting. As I was on a Zoom call last night with Pastor Brandon uh, from Hollywood Adventist, and it was just he and I at the very beginning. And I was like, where's everybody else on the and he had just gotten back from like a one week staycation for like self care and respite and everything. And I'm like, this is so, so I decided I'm just going to talk to him about Carrie Morrison and Iglesia, right? Cause that is that Ecclesia, how you, Ecclesia, Ecclesia, we right? We use Ecclesia on Sunday and the Adventists use it right? on Saturday, <laughs> which is the church that I attend, yeah. right? My yeah. faith community. Yeah, That's such a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. It is super coincidental. Cause we did not know this until mm-hmm. we just met. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's so interesting to me because just thinking about like how many of us are being called into this work, right? And of different faiths and of different beliefs. And I don't really think at this point it really matters. I've just like, we're discovering how interconnected we all are, mm-hmm. right? And then we're in the middle of this, like, like things are like the public library is talking about taking the LAPD out of their libraries, right? Loss is talking about taking the LAPD out. Like we're talking about taking the law enforcement arm out of mental health and offering more support of like, you know, my big thing is kind of normalizing people giving their own numbers rather than sending people to an 800 number with a volunteer Mm -hmm. somewhere in another, like I'm actually in your life and you're feeling like taking your life whether you're going to, like, why am I sending you to an 800 number? Right. Like, that just seems really, like, counterintuitive. And maybe why our suicide rate continues to rise. In this, but it's like we don't, we get so uncomfortable talking about uncomfortable topics. Well, you know, I, I know some amazing LAPD and LASD officers who do incredible work in the crisis response, you know, uh, MEU space, right? And they have done with... They've never come when I've been in crisis. Well, no, but that's the thing. No, yeah. they, they're they're like a like a... There's not enough of them, yeah. the way they've been trained yeah. and just their sensitivity. Um, they do their crisis intervention training as much as possible. But this is not what they signed up for. Yeah. This is They're like ready to like, hey, let's. But the thing is, the thing that scares me right now about this kind of hasty movement is we envisioned what a system would look like in Hollywood. So let me explain it yeah, to you sure. because I don't think anybody's talking about this. So we envisioned a 24-7 roving team and because there are people if in your community whether they're homeless or maybe even housed um, if they are individuals who have kind of constant interactions with the mental health system you know who they are yeah and it's really important that there be a familiar face right okay. because there's a trusting face yeah. um, so the notion would be that there'd be this 24 7 team constantly roving through Hollywood and there'd be a certain number that you would use to call that team. So you're not calling 911. Okay. And there would have to be a lot of outreach to say, okay, call this number if you need the team to, sh- to show up. I've written this like little story called A Day in the Life of Hollywood where I have a vision of what this would look like mm-hmm. if, if, the, if we could ever do this pilot. It'd be like, you know, Susie's at Target again. She's kind of, she always kind of shows up at Target and she's having... She's challenging and everyone's feeling a bit scared. So instead of Target calling the police, they call this car. The car comes. They know Susie. Susie recognizes the people. And then there has to be a place for Susie to go. So Mm -hmm. we imagined um, an urgent care center. Okay. And I actually had a chance to tour one up in San Francisco that the Progress Foundation runs. Okay. And it is a... 
it's a room with 12 Lazy Boy Rockers. Okay. Um, the two nurses that work there um, have uh, plain clothes. Okay. There's no security guard. Okay. There's like nice lights and uh, you can get a snack. You can charge your phone. You can take okay. a shower. You can be there for up to 23 hours and you can kind of calm down. Meanwhile, yeah. because this is not like a once and done thing, there's like engagement with whoever is your accountable service provider to like start moving you toward housing or interim housing or whatever. Uh, you know, now we just put people back out on the street. Yeah. So it's a systemic response. It's not just like, oh, we just need someone else to re respond to the call and things will be fine. Like, yeah. no, no, there needs to be like a warm handoff yeah. and another warm handoff and accountability. Yeah. So there is there is a space in San Francisco then that is kind of like what you're describing where people that are having that kind of situation in their life or that experience can go where so there is there are some people are that are doing this doing the other kind of end because we do, we do we have to talk about that right right of that's what why, happens when when where where do they go you know in yeah the I, that's why I feel like in America we do have because we do have kind-hearted people in America who know that there's a better way to do this yeah. the way I I visualize this uh, there's a lot of little sparks of positive light all throughout the mm -hmm. country there's 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 these kinds of services that are provided there are places where people can live that are yeah. very you know embrace the whole person you know there's there are positive mental health clinics, et cetera, but they're just like, they're not connected yeah. through any kind of systemic connection. There are a thousand points of light that are kind of operating independently, mm -hmm. but our system doesn't support them. Yeah, absolutely. That's the big change that has to happen. Yeah. And like one of the things in the Hollywood pilot that I did not fully understand until Dr. Pallon wrote this in, because, you know, I, I managed a bit. I'm, I'm not an expert on healthcare or yeah. how mental health care is paid for. But what you I... You seem like you've learned a lot, though. I have so learned a lot. Don't, <laughs> like, underplay what you know. Anyway, go but ahead. But one of the... Because <laughs> the, the Italian system, of course, they do have national health care. Okay. So they have a budget. They yeah. have a per capita budget per person. Okay. Which is why they take care of the whole person needs with that budget. So what, what was envisioned for the pilot was to uncouple uh, your interaction with the clinic from any kind of Medicaid fee for service okay. and to have a per capita budget. So if your biggest need as a human being is to get your bus pass restored because it got stolen and you got to get your mm -hmm. birth certificate and mobility would be really important just to your kind of like feeling that you got your life back under control. Right now, Medicaid is not going to pay for a DMH clinic to help you get all that put back together again. Well, in the pilot, whatever you needed as a human being would be tended to. Okay. Because it would be the, the, it imagined a per capita budget. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wanted to go back to really quick to what I was saying about law enforcement. Um, it's not to say that like every law enforcement person that's ever done a well check, because after my dad's death, it was like regularly in my apartment back in Oregon. Um, began to get to know them and they began to send the really nice lesbian to come talk to me. And I was like, Oh, you figured it out. Good. I'm glad. Thank you. Um, but it's the, like when you're going through that, right. And you're going through like, in my case, like the suicidal ideations and all of that. And someone comes up to you with a gun 
and dressed in the cop outfit and all of that. And they're not approaching you in the way that you would approach someone or Pastor Brandon, right? Or Andrew from Hollywood Adventist or... I'm thinking of Jason Brown, amazing advocate, right? I know any, Jason. Yeah, yeah, any of these amazing, these amazing people, like you're saying, that have these amazing hearts. Like, law enforcement isn't approaching them in that way. Because that's not what law, like you said, that's not what they're, tra- and even if they are trained, like, they're not, it's so triggering. Like, even right now, I'm, like, feeling anxiety to think about what that feels like when you're having a traumatic breakdown like that and what's going on for you. And then all of a sudden, someone's coming at you that's armed, right? And they're about to put you in handcuffs. And you know they're about to put you in handcuffs because it's happened before. So that's, I guess, what I was trying to say is yeah. it's, it's more the whole, like... They could be as they nice be as possible. They the kindest person ever. Yeah, I see what you're saying. but it's super traumatic because yeah. they're weaponized and they're locking you up and they're basically stripping you of your rights. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, it's a really like, in a, in a culture where we are right now with COVID and everybody talking about masks and everything, it's like, for me, it's been really interesting because I'm like, welcome to my world as a queer person. Welcome to my world as someone who, you know, lived through, you know, I was just coming of age of age when everybody was dying, you know, of complications of AIDS. And so it's like, it's been very weird to me to kind of watch this transition. Cause it's, these are conversations that I've wanted to have and people talk about like normalizing, you know, mental wellness and all of these things. And I'm like, but we all are going through things. It's just some people are really good because of their privilege and hiding it. And they come from intergenerational privilege and money. And so they've got the privilege of four walls and they've got the privilege of their family can pay for stuff to go away so they don't have to worry about it. And some people don't come from that and their family just kind of like leaves them to, you know, Le- not have their own any help. Yeah. yeah. And then they end up, you know, with people like you and I going, oh my gosh, I see this person all the time and my heart breaks for them because like nobody should have to go through that. Nobody should have to sleep on the sidewalk. Well, and eventually if you're out there long enough, you're going to end up in jail, right? Yeah. You know, that's the one bed that will always be there for you. And um, I've, I've been to Twin Towers now, I think five times and it nothing ever prepares you for that experience, especially yeah. in the high observation housing. You know, it's, I just finished a book that I highly recommend, um, uh, Insane by Alyssa Roth. Okay. It's about, um, she largely focuses on LA County Twin Towers and the Cook County jail system and a little bit about um, Miami-Dade in, in Florida. And it's just an absolute tragedy what we've allowed to have happen mm-hmm. in the United States and how many people are are stuck in jail with a mental illness. Yeah. Can you talk a little, because we've talked off the podcast, can you talk a little bit about your work with the So I'm actually, here? yeah, I, I kind of coincidentally um, managed to um, connect with two guys in Twin Towers uh, who are, they are, they are not suffering from mental illness. They are in on life sentences, okay. hoping to actually get appeal, their life sentences. But they're living in, what's called the FIP step-down unit, forensic inpatient step-down unit, which is um, where inmates are being restored to competency to stand trial. Okay. So they're, they're pretty um, sick people. And these two young men, one is 25, one is 39, have written a book about their experience for the past three years living oh, wow. with these inmates. And they have created a curriculum and a structure and a sense of community and camaraderie. And it is the most remarkable thing. They had to write this book with a golf pencil because that's all they're allowed to have access to, right? Unbelievable. So 
I managed to meet them in February, and I have stayed in connection with both of them, and I'm helping them get their book published. Oh, cool. And I'm super excited because they offer like a picture of hope, right? And, And I've also asked them to capture in their own words a better way to do incarceration yeah. for people with mental illness and also something that they're very excited about imagining post-incarceration what what would be an alternative in their view they've told me that 80 percent of the people that they see come through twin towers um, end up on the streets using meth very quickly oh, after yeah. leaving because there's no options for yeah. them right and I, I challenged, I said, 80%? And they said, yes. I, I said, would think it's even higher, actually. Okay. Yeah. So they have a vision, which I'm excited in the next couple of months to be able to help, help, help them share it with, with people, of a, like a village or a community. They said there's got to be something to the mentally ill inmate leaving jail that is more attractive than meth on the street. And in their view, it, it would be a highly structured sense of community, okay. like a farm and yeah. places to cook and places to recreate and your own little place to live. Mm-hmm. But it would be a community yeah. as, and a supportive community right. that they don't, people, you know, ex-offenders don't have. And it's, they have done everything to imagine how, how it would be laid out, yeah. what the rec center should look like. So I'm super excited about this journey I'm on with them. Maybe we'll be able to talk about that in a few months. But it gives me a sense of hope, right? Although the two of them are in on life sentences. That part's kind of discouraging. They, they are both trying to have their, their um, convictions like appealed. Mountains can move, Gary Morrison. <laughs> mountains can move. That's all I'm going to say. Actually, that's not ever all I'm going to say. As you notice, I haven't put the microphone down again. Um, so that's so interesting because so the meth issue and I don't think it's I've heard people say it's so attractive but I've actually lost partners to meth and they didn't have it wasn't attractive to them I've actually people that are still alive that are in recovery have said oh yeah I did it because it was fun and I'm like really because most of the people that I know that struggle with it didn't think it was fun um and when people are outside, it's it's difficult. It's why people turn to substances, like whether it be alcohol to help make the ground feel softer or, you know, help them lighten their mood, even though it's a depressant, it still lightens their mood um, and makes them warmer at night. Mm-hmm. The same thing with meth. When you're outside at night, the streets are not safe for anyone at all. So it helps them stay awake. It right? helps you stay awake. It helps you stay alert. It's very difficult. I can I can speak from personal experience. I was I was just outside again for the month of April and it was terrifying because I couldn't get away from it. And I had forgotten because I'd been in an interim shelter for a little bit. I had forgotten where that sort of intersection for because it's not a struggle for me, but it is a trigger because I've had so many partners that like would just disappear and I wouldn't know where they would go for three or four days and they'd come back after a bender and then just sleep and be mad. And I didn't get it at the time when I was younger. And so for me, it's very like, it's very upsetting to have someone ask me, you know, if I have it or if I've got a lighter or even to watch them do it. And it's prevalent in our city, right? It's everywhere. I mean, literally I can walk out of the motel where I'm staying and within a block, well, not quite a block. There's probably about two blocks because you have to kind of cross 
Broadway to see it overborne by the Metro. But there's all sorts of folks just sitting out there with their meth pipe or their crack pipe smoking. And it's just like, we've got to do something to realize that this isn't because it's attractive. It's because I'm meeting a lot of people that are being let out who are nonviolent offenders that they're being let out in the middle of COVID because and people don't, no and they've got nowhere to go. And they don't know where they're going. One of the guys that I met was taking himself back to a psych ward at a hospital. But like, as I began to talk with him, I began to realize that like, that's where he really need, he was really having a mental health breakdown not to like hurt himself, to hurt other people. Mm -hmm. And he was really in that. And I even wondered like, was he like on his way? Cause that's happened to me before when people have opened up and they're on their way to find, and they find me. And we have this amazing interaction and conversation and then they get really agitated again and then they need to go find the meth. And it's not because it's attractive. It's because they're hooked Yeah. because they're outside and they're trying to stay awake because there's no spot for them to sit down or sleep or go to the bathroom or anything. And I don't really and see And then we any... hold them responsible for it. Right. There's no real attempt to intervene on this meth issue. It's, it is very, especially now in COVID, it's, it's. It's, it seems to be the lowest priority, but it, it is a, it is a scourge on our community right now. And it's affecting it's affecting human lives and it's definitely a part of the mental health conversation. And I feel like it gets left out a lot because like the whole thing of like people that, that, that have the attract, it's like alcohol. It's like alcohol dealing with alcohol as an, it's not attractive. And so for people to say, Oh, you know, I just have so much fun. Well, no, not really because all of the bad stuff that happens along with it, but like, reframing that as well you know because there's a lot of dual addiction or dual diagnosis mm -hmm. stuff right and right. me being a peer that's a lot of the people that i interact with and get to know as people with dual diagnosis and just like realizing that like it's not that it's attractive it's that they have nowhere else to turn yeah you know? it's interesting <laughs> that you say that uh, one of the inmates i talk to them all uh, every day that may have been him calling um he said that there was one guy in, in their pod uh, who was so addicted to meth, and he had been in jail for quite some time, yeah. but when he would go into his cell at night, he would just start sobbing. And mm -hmm. so my my new buddy would say, like, what's wrong? Like, maybe thinking he missed his mother, his grandmother. He goes, I want my meth. Like, I want my meth. It is just that much of an allure. Yeah. So, like, I'm really, I need to, I need to, like, talk to someone about, like, how do you get off that? Like, yeah. I understand that it's it's super powerful, and it's. Mm -hmm. I've I've had people say that like even at an NA meeting or an AA meeting, it's hard to find someone who's been off meth for like you know more than three years or something. Oh really? Yeah. I don't like I said I don't have a personal like experience with it in that way, but I do have two two ex boyfriends that took their life because of it, and then I have lost multiple other people because of it because it just like it ruins your body and it's just so sad to me that like, well, I'm, it's not the meth they miss. It's the connection they miss and they find the connection through the meth. And I just, I spent enough time out on the street having folks come up to me and, and asking me and then like, I don't have any meth, but I'll engage you in a conversation. It's two o'clock in the morning, but like you want to talk, let's talk. Cause I didn't like to sleep in a tent. And so it was very, very interesting because they would for, like I said, they would for a little while, they would engage in the conversation and it's that it's, they're searching for the connection, but everybody else in our culture has written them off as not being a human being. So they're turning to the substance because that's where they're finding the comfort, right? Exactly. And that's, and so if I, and I, and I feel like that's coming very much from a place of privilege. But like I said, I, I feel like that needs to be a part of the conversation because 
when we leave them outside, they're going to turn to something. They're going to turn because it's it's in the community. It's out there. It's on the street. It's in people's homes as well. And we have to talk about it because it's part of this conversation. I also wanted to talk to really quick because the whole peer led movement with mental health is really big in Oregon. And I know with the Oregon health plan and the, the, the Oregon healthcare transformation, a big part of it was de-siloing and like connecting like the mental health with the physical health, with the dental health and, and all of these things and getting, you know, folks communicating and wraparound service teams and things like that. Like, has that come up in the conversation at all with like de-siloing these sectors that deal with these folks or? Well, I mean, in the Italian system, you know, you're, the mental health and healthcare are all part of the same budget, yeah. right? So, um, yeah, we, we obviously have huge limitations in our American healthcare system. It's a good question. I'm not sure, you know, the whole, the whole intent of this pilot was to have one year to do the planning, mm -hmm. you know, the, the proposal is a 57 page kind of like proposal, but then the rubber meets the road when you really start designing how it's supposed to play yeah. out and how, how people would access good health care, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that would have been discussed in the planning year. Okay. Um, but on the peer issue, that is super, super important. Um, w we almost envision, <laughs> I, I hope people don't take this wrong, less people with initials on their business cards and more people with lived experience kind of helping make this model work. That's where it's shifting. If you got initials after your name and you're working in mental health, you might find yourself looking for, well, maybe not. Maybe they'll just have to stop thinking their initials mean so much. Because I got initials too, they just happen to be my birth initials. Yeah. But I've got I've got enough right, and that's that's the thing. We don't give the people with the lived experience who've actually been through it mm -hmm. the credit of like, oh, they know because they've lived through it and they've come. We use the term resilience, which mm -hmm. is also a very privileged term. But yeah. So what does that look like to have less initials? Would that still be like? Would there still be like training involved? Do you think or? Well, you know, like. It you would you look at it in the Italian system again? You know because nobody was wearing lanyards or name tags. There were what would be called they called them social workers or community workers. Okay, a whole yeah. bunch of them who would go out into the community and go yeah. go visit people at their their living you know quarters or in their like jobs or whatever. Okay. They were and they were peers who were employed. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, they have a huge ethos about employment and yeah. pur purposeful. Uh, a purposeful life means yeah. you have to have a job of some sort. Yeah. So they weren't sending out it's very Italian MSWs or <laughs> yeah. whatever. You know, it's yeah. like, who, well, how do what do you have in common with someone like that? Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, and you might because some of them do, but um, yeah. Again, like I've I've spent three years looking for the current therapist that I'm seeing, and and I'm ironically meeting some amazing therapists through this new change your algorithm class with Joel Relampagos and. Uh, it's been very, very cool to engage with that, but these are also not folks who take Medi-Cal, mm -hmm. so I don't have access to them. Like, I have access to them in the class, and they're beautiful, but it's like, it's a pay-for-services-directly kind of situation. They're volunteering their time in the classes, but... It we just, almost it, think about like the AA model as an example. Yeah. And I have visited AA with a couple friends when they would have like a, a birthday, you know, they, okay. they, they celebrate. And yeah. I, I'm always like so amazed at the sense of camaraderie, support, and it's 100% peer led, right? Yeah. And there's no big budget and there's no bylaws and there's no, you know, bureaucracy. It's a, it's have a, you been to share yet? 
Do you know about Cher? In Culver City? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been to their office, but I haven't seen it in action. Okay. I actually took their Peer Specialist 101 class in January and February of this year. Uh, aced out, I think. Thank you very much. Uh, but um, I learned a lot, and my big purpose for taking it was I wanted to see, like, what, like, peers are being taught because I would like to go work in mental health. Um, but I was really like, it was pre COVID. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was thinking, Oh, well, I don't want to just be a peer, you know, I'd really like to go and get like a real degree and things like that. And then just seeing their like very low barrier, non-hierarchical, there's no reception desk. There's no place where you check in. It's so like for the people that clubhouse kind of mm -hmm. model. Mm -hmm. Right. And, but in a larger way, is it always perfect? No, but there's like also not like one or two options. There's like hundreds and hundreds of options and it's all peer led. Everyone who works there is some peer with lived experience. And it's just so, and so that would kind of be like the community wellness centers in Italy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. And then we would, you know, I want to have a clubhouse in Hollywood. Cher, are you hearing this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh -oh. Ruth, Ruth Holman, Ruth, Libby, Pinees, all of you from Cher. I hope you're listening that we want to, because that would be really cool to, because that exists, right? They have two and figuring out like where this is because they're also with the de they're also working with the department of mental health right yeah that goes this back to like the, same the little points of light there's yeah. all these little points of light out there but they're kind of like disparately they're not tied together in any systemic way i'd love to tie them all together in hollywood well, I, and i think that's the the thing that you're doing well i know that's the thing that you're doing because right now right you're you said that you're bringing people together on mondays right well, Zoom so calls? right right now what I'm doing is, is um, I've always been involved with our homeless coalition, which is called Hollywood Forward. So I'm bringing everybody together on a Zoom call just to keep people connected and communicating. It's called Hollywood Forward? Yeah. Okay. yeah it's another forward. But it, that one stands <laughs> for four, the number four, WRD stands for four walls, a roof, and a door. So it's intended, oh, it's our okay. coalition to end homelessness. So the four walls, a roof. Yeah, it's kind of coincidental. That's cute. Yeah. I give Dr. Sharon credit for coming up with Heart Forward because when we were in Italy the first time, he, he said, let's use hashtag Heart Forward for what we're seeing here because mm -hmm. what, what it means is that you can lead with your heart. And um, I think too often people in the American social work system have had to park their heart at the door and they have to lead by the rules that mm -hmm. they're assigned and it's sad. And I've talked to people who are social workers who say, this is not what I signed up for yeah. either. I, one of my friends who is a um, outreach worker for DMH told me, and yeah, I don't think I can out him because I'm not going to say who this person is, that they were told last year to no longer provide a cigarette to, you know, someone they might be engaging on the street, even though that is one of the single best <laughs> opportunities to kind of like as he says slow that person down for maybe the four minutes i can get mm -hmm. give them something they they really want at that moment uh it's a trusting thing but the rule was oh because we are the department of mental health it's not healthy to have people smoke cigarettes so you are forbidden from giving people cigarettes well like who made up that rule <laughs> 
Like someone sitting at a desk with a bunch of initials on their business card. Living on the street is so going to save their fucking life. Right. Excuse me. Right. So they're going to go get DMH. them. DMH. I'm watching you, DMH. I love you, but I'm watching you. Well, it's like that That to me is like just one example Privileged. of rules that yeah. go against heart forward. Yeah. If your heart tells you that at this like if I need to give you a piece of Wrigley's gum, I should give you that. But yeah. if I need to give you a cigarette, I should give you that. Well, we should give them homes, yeah. right? And, and I mean, I think that's the bigger thing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I'm not going to give you a cigarette because, yeah, you don't deserve a cigarette or a home. Like, <laughs> and I'm not making fun of DMH. I just think it's, it's like you said, the the. It's the system. It's the system. It's the s- systemic positional privilege. It's the intergenerational privilege. I really believe in looking at the the numbers among people who are who are without homes. Uh, it's very rare to see a cisgender white heterosexual heteronormative person who's able-bodied out on the street it's just not but, um, but, and, it's, but, and it's also not it's not common to see an able-bodied like there's there's definitely like a population that is left out on the street and then the mental health and the things that happen with them get worse and worse and worse but i, I will say that I was there on the were a number of people on the hollywood top 14 list who were caucasian and came from you okay. know came from places of privilege that mental illness is kind of like the pandemic. It doesn't discriminate on how you're going to, whether you're going to experience it. Mm -hmm. Now, how you may deal with it could be different. But I I also think that there are families who have just been wrecked by not being able to help their loved one, even if they had the resources to do so. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to say one more thing about the mental health system, because going back to before when I said, I have met some of the most compassionate cops out there and, mm-hmm. and they have been put into roles that they did not sign up for. And I have met incredible social workers and LCSWs and MSWs who would love to be liberated mm-hmm. to let their heart forward yeah. lead. So again, there's no, I'm not disparaging the people. It's just the, the constraints yeah. of the system. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that's the, it's the thing that I'm certainly up against as a as a peer advocate with lived experience and a podcast host. And it's why I wanted to have you on Real Good Stuff to talk about radical hospitality. What does that look like to lead with our heart, right? We obviously come from two very different experiences, even though we're both white. Um, but for me, it's so... Our stories matter and our perspectives matter, right? Your perspectives matter. My perspectives matter. All of these folks that are living on the te- in these tents and on the street. I mean, I'm just, I'm stunned at the, the way it's grown in the last few months, the number of people that are outside and not people that are willingly like occupying out in front of city hall. I'm, I'm talking about people really that don't have a place to go because and I don't think the system's broken. I think the system is working the way it's supposed to work. It's meant to like, it's been meant to like work for the folks with the letters after their name and all of the privilege and all of these things. And it's not been set up for those of us that don't have that to survive and to thrive. And we have to change that. So everybody has, and I don't even want to say an equal opportunity, but a chance to live, right? Because right now we're not, we're not given that opportunity. So Carrie, I'm really curious moving forward, like if someone's inspired by this and maybe they're not in Hollywood or maybe they're, you know, in a rural town somewhere, they're somewhere else in the world. Um, how do we engage with this? Like, how do we lead with our heart? Like how, 
How do you, as Carrie Morrison, or how can someone else lead with their heart, become an innovator, become a part of this mental health worldwide transformation that we're trying to well, so first of all, I will I will respond to any email that anybody sends me. Okay. And I and and I and I, I I capture these emails like little butterflies, and I keep a list of everyone who's ever reached out to me. Oh wow. And I, I kind of put them on what I call my kitchen cabinet, so that <laughs> anytime I something new is happening, I, I send out a you know like a BCC email like here's an update. I want you to be aware of this because we are, we're kindred souls. Like yeah. we're, we're all touched by the same thing. We want to yeah. see change. So. You can you can check out heartforwardla.org. Okay. That is kind of like the general website that kind of describes the origins of how this happened and the first trip to Trieste, et cetera, and what our plan is for the coming year. And then um, it will link you also to my blog, which is my journey. Um, okay. And that blog is Accoglienza. Okay. Which means hospitality in okay. Italian. So you can find that on Heart Forward LA. It's sure. you know, Acquienza, A-C-C-O-G-L-I-E-N-Z-A, acquienza.us. And there I tell stories about what I'm seeing okay. uh, on the streets and in our system. And I try not to throw our system under the bus. I more try to compare it to what it would be like in Trieste. Right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think what you're doing with that's important. I just, I think our our styles and who we are is different. Like, right. You're, you're coming at it from a different angle. And I think we're all of our perspectives. What I was trying to say is all of us are important and the way you're going about it, because you're focusing on where we're going. Right. Cause it's so important because there's, like you said, people really aren't doing this. Right. At least not in this country. Yeah, right I'm now. trying to not be combative. I'm, yeah. sure, you know, that's not. You my, don't seem like a combative person. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. You know, don't have my fists in the air. It's not my nature. But I'm trying to be firm and like bold and and and. I've been actually struggling with what I'm trying to be. Um, okay. I'm still learning, but I believe what. Why I'm still committed is I believe we can do better for people. Yeah. I have seen transformation in just some friends who were lying in their own excrement on Hollywood Boulevard, completely out of it. And now these are people that I will hug. Well, I would hug pre COVID. (laughs) I would hug and have lunch with. I've seen complete life transformation when you finally do figure out a way to get that person housed and treated and fed and bathed. And like, why are we not letting people live their best life? So I'm a hundred percent committed to that. So you've seen it work. I've seen it work. And I also believe I had a friend recently say to me, you might be on the beginning of what is likely going to be a 40 year generational journey that I will not be around to see finish. And that actually gave me some peace because this system change that we know needs yeah. to happen is so massive mm-hmm. that if I can just be at the beginning of it and say, I've seen a better way. I know we can do better. Human beings can have a better life. It's possible. And we're not going to like just throw up our hands and say, well, that could never happen in America. Just yeah. keep believing that it can. And maybe it's going to take a generation, but there's, <laughs> you can't give up. Yeah. It's already happening. Well, and, I'll start by saying in mental health, one of the things that the communities that I'm in, we practice is the phrase, keep going, right? Just keep going and keep going. Even when you feel like you can't just keep going and reach out when you can't and keep going. Um, it's already happening. It's already happening. I'm on multiple 
calls involved in multiple groups. I'm in a Toastmasters group that's actually like got a mental health focus and we're not the only one. Um, I'm so amazed. I'm so honored to have crossed paths, crossed paths with you. I'm going to say that again. I'm so honored to have crossed paths with you, Carrie Morrison. I appreciate you. I appreciate your perspective. I appreciate that we are so different because I'm Italian and can be very loud and boisterous and I'm a Leo and I'm going to speak truth to power <laughs> and my fist may go up in the air. Uh, and that's okay because we all bring our gift, right? And that's a big part of real good stuff is just realizing that like, this is going to take all of us. And so speaking of Pastor Brandon and then your church that also meets in the same space, I'm a part of multiple other faith communities and there's a priest from the LA Episcopal Diocese. His name is Joey Courtney and he is a chaplain at um, Campbell Hall, I mm. believe it is. And then also he's our priest for Holy Spirit in Silver Lake Echo Park, right? At the St. Francis Chapel right there on the east side of the river in Atwater. He came up through Griffith Park the other day and sitting right there, I'm sitting right there at the top of the little stairs by Western. Maybe I shouldn't out myself where I go sit and look at downtown. Um, but if you need to email me, you can find me there. But Joey walks up and I'm having this really rough day the other day, you know, thinking about my dad and, you know, thinking about COVID-19 and the fact that I still don't have a permanent home and all of this stuff. And I'm sitting there crying and he comes walking up the steps and, and he looks at me and he just stops and he goes, how's it going? And I'm like, I, honestly, I'm not doing too good. And we started talking and he looked at me and he's like, you know, nobody ever wants to listen to a prophet, Scott. And it just like hit me because all of a sudden it was like, oh, dad, I feel you right here. I get it. Like, this is not going to happen overnight, but it's already happening. There's folks like you. There's folks like me. There's folks we've seen a different way, even if we've not been there to Italy. You know, obviously these folks in what was that place in San Francisco again you At mentioned? The Progress Foundation. Progress Foundation. There's mm -hmm. obviously other people who get this. I know the therapist I'm seeing, Lorraine, with Step Up on Second. She gets it. And I believe that Step Up is trying to get it. I do. It says, does everyone get completely understand? No, because I don't think unless we've actually like lived through it, like... I can't know, but just knowing that like we've seen a better way, we're trying, I'm always trying, you know, even when I have misunderstandings with people, like how can I go back and lead with my heart? How can I be compassionate? And I just think it's so beautiful that like you were there to like help engage folks in Hollywood and help make Hollywood a safer community, but you didn't just stop with the people that owned businesses or were coming and spending their money there. You looked and you saw everyone that was in your space and you held space with all of them. That's why I think you're amazing. I know you're amazing, Carrie Morrison. Thank you. Is there any last things that you want to share with the folks that are no, listening? I, it was really fun to tell the story again, Scott, and I'm also inspired by you. And I know we've got some things on the horizon that we want to work on together. And I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. I love, I just want to tell people that to, the t to just to set this moment in time, here we are in mid-July, we're at Pan Pacific Park. It's a beautiful day. Um, at least we can be outside. Yes. And we're healthy. And we envision a better future for Los Angeles and for the world. But we know we still have a world of hurt to go through to, to get out on the other side of this. So um, I, I look forward to like maybe in two years we can 
do a redux of this conversation and we'll have some really good things to share. Yes, you could be a, like a revisiting guest in the future. <laughs> I love it. I'm so excited about um, so many things. I'm just like learning from you. I'm just all of this. So please check out heartforwardla, right? .org. And you can also find a link to Carrie's blog. And what is that? That's an Italian word for what? Hospitality. Hospitality. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for listening. This has been Scott Clapson on Real Good Stuff. Our special guest, Carrie Morrison from Heart Forward LA. We've been talking about radical hospitality and a mental health wellness community-based shift and transformation here in the LA area. We are connecting with people. So if you have got a story to tell and you'd like to be on Real Good Stuff or connect with Carrie, look up Heart Forward la.org or contact me at realgoodstuff.org. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. This little light of mine.